You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash missionlog40 and use code missionlog40, that's four zero, to get 40% off your first box. That's code missionlog40, four zero, at factormeals.com slash missionlog40 to get 40% off your first box. This episode is also sponsored by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 491, Blood Fever. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we strip away polite pretense to get to the beating heart of Star Trek, looking along the way for morals, meanings, messages, and the kind of love that can only come from a knockdown, drag out brawl. This week, Blood Fever, the one where both Balana and Vork have got a fever. The kind of fever! That can't be satisfied by more cowbell. And we'll have trivia in a moment, but first, a word on how to reach us and a word of thanks to the people in our Patreon community. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. Uh, Norman, in that contact information, you, you said the magic word again. You said conversation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we talked about this before, how Mission Log, yeah, it, it's me and you talking about Star Trek. But as you like to say, as I like to say, once we're done, well, that's just the beginning. The show goes out to all of you, our audience, and then you get to talk about the topics that we raise and bring your own opinions into the mix as well. And that is what I love about how this show works and how that folds into our Discord community. Because on Discord, that is where the really exciting conversations take place. And people who join our Patreon get to go step into our Discord community. It is, in fact, exclusive for members of our Patreon at patreon.com slash mission log. I think that's where the secret of our success is, you know, with this community on Discord. People that are there choose to be there. They choose to support us. They choose to go to patreon.com slash mission log and find the support level for them. But once they're in, and even though that we're moderators, we can sit back and look at these conversations like organically unfold. And sometimes you may want to step in, but then you see how they actually develop and watch the maturity and care and respect happen with the the back and forth in the discord. And you look and say, this is why we've created this, to have these kinds of quality conversations that respect the both points of views of all the people that are involved. That in and of itself is very unique. How many times have I read the Discord comments that said, uh, 
you know, you should really be doing a show like Mission Log <laughs> because it's so good. So, yes, if you'd like to be a part of that, if you'd like to be part of our Patreon, where automatically you get early access to our shows and you get some exclusive swag, there are many reasons to be part of that anyway, but especially Discord. You can join us at patreon.com slash mission log. Norm, who's new in the conversation? Well, we just want to say thank you to some of our newest Patreon subscribers, Aaron, Emily, David, Glenda, Stephanie, and Henry. Thank you so much for being a part of us. And thank you for so much for all of your support and for joining the Mission Log Discord. All right. We will see you there. Patreon.com slash Mission Log to join the Mission Log Discord. And now here's John Champion with this week's Birds and the Bees and the Trivia, if you please. Wow, that was well done, man. All right, hey, hey, you want to do a podcast? All right, so trivia for this week's episode, Blood Fever. We have a story and a teleplay written by Lisa Klink, and naturally, Lisa is well integrated here into Voyager's cadre of writers and producers, and also, naturally, this is an episode that had influences from others and quite a few changes before production. Now, they knew that they wanted to address Ponfar, and they knew they had a Vulcan on board in Tuvok, but that was A, too obvious, and B, too against character for Tuvok, who we know is a devoted family man. So the challenge became finding a way to offload the Ponfar experience onto another character, and Bolana Torres, with the already competing sides of her heritage, that became a much more interesting choice. And once we got there, it was assumed that she and Tuvok would be trapped in the caves and he would walk her through the experience. But wait, what about Tom Paris? The very mild flirtation they had been playing was remembered at the very last minute, right before filming started then, Tom stepped into place to share the experience and also establish a relationship for these crewmates. And that means the Tuvok scenes were rewritten as Tom scenes as production was already underway. Now, this is directed by Andrew Robinson, a very familiar name to us here, as he was Garrick on DS9. Now, you may remember when we talked about Andy directing the DS9 episode looking for Parmach in all the wrong places, that he wasn't totally unfamiliar in the director's role. He had an extensive background in live theater, where he both worked as an actor and director. And then on Star Trek, he helmed that episode of DS9, and he will fulfill one more assignment on Voyager. In addition, Andy went on to direct seven episodes of Judging Amy. We have an interesting technical point about filming in this episode. All the shots in the cave were done with handheld camera by one of my all-time favorites, Marvin Rush, of course, and that created a bit of atmosphere. Uh, those spaces are tighter, and they also relied on lights being used by the actors in addition to just a few key lights around the set. So when you think about that and watch it, you really notice how creative they got with those shots. Now let's talk about our guest stars. Not too many to point out here. We do have a return of Alexander Enberg in the role of Vorik, much more prominently this time. And then there is a uh, Sakari named Ishan, who we meet during the away mission. He's the one who does all the talking, even though we see a handful of others of his species. 
Bruce Bonney played the role. He's from Minnesota, and appropriately, his first on-screen credit is from the 1994 movie Fargo. His Trek appearance followed shortly after, and he later appeared in movies like Patch Adams, Man of Steel, and Dawn of the Dead, and TV series like Jericho, Freaks and Geeks, and Law and Order SVU. Oh, and uh, there is one more uncredited character at the very end. The production waited until after the release of Star Trek First Contact to incorporate the reveal of a major Star Trek villain in this series. He's pretty quiet, but we will see more of his kind in episodes to come. Get ready for your knowledge of Vulcan mating practices to expand Pon farther than ever before. Don't say I didn't warn you. Prologue. Just another normal, totally unremarkable day aboard Voyager. The excitement in the air, and literally nothing else, is that they found a planet rich in gallocyte, an element necessary in maintaining the warp coils. Lucky for them, the planet, where it's located, is empty. Whoever did live there and dig mining tunnels is long gone. Belana is tasked with putting together an away team. Tom Paris and Neelix, due to their climbing skills, and Vorek volunteers himself based on similar experience. Once the planning session is done, Vorek makes a proposal to Milana. Literally. He makes a very logical case for their marriage, as his Vulcan logic and her Klingon passion will make them a great couple. She's amused at first, but flat out refuses, which awakens a kind of rage in Vorek. He gets more insistent and even grabs her face, pulling her closer until she can break free and throws a punch, knocking him to the deck. Act 1. The EMH has this figured out. Ever heard of Ponfar? Not many people have, because as Vorek reminds us, it is super personal, and basically no Starfleet records exist about it. Normally, he would return to Vulcan to mate, but Voyager is definitely not going to get there in time. The only other option, Vorek insists, is that he be allowed to deal with this through intensive private meditation in his quarters, which the doctor reluctantly agrees, but only if he wears a cortical monitor. Even Tuvok is of little help, reiterating that Vorek's condition is private. He can only deal with it this way, or take a mate, or engage in ritual combat, so really just let him stay in his room. When the away team assembles, Balana is uncharacteristically energetic and focused, just a bit more intense. Oh, and Vorek is definitely off this mission. Belana, Tom, and Neelix beam down, and she gets right to work. They reach the deepest part of the caves, where they'll need to repel to reach the bottom. Tom starts, then Neelix, then Belana, but one of the anchors fails, sending Neelix on a long fall to the ground. He's badly hurt, and making matters worse is Belana's furious overreaction. She bites Tom's face, then storms off to find the Gallicite herself, leaving Tom to call Voyager for help. Act 2. Belana is nowhere to be found, which necessitates Voyager sending down a rescue team of Tuvok and Chakotay since transporters can't penetrate that far into the caverns to retrieve Neelix. 
Before leaving, though, Tuvok stops by Vorik's quarters. There, as he suspected, Vorik is in deep meditation, but equally volatile. When Tuvok asks questions about his interaction with Torres, the problem becomes clear. By touching her the way he did, Vorik inadvertently initiated a telepathic mating bond. That has tipped off a kind of early ponfar in Balana. Vorik insists that he go to find her, but Tuvok wisely says that for her own safety, she needs to be brought back to Voyager, and again, Vorik should stay in his room. Once in position in the caverns, Chakotay assists hoisting Neelix up to safety, while Tuvok and Tom go in search of Balana. She has made her way deeper into the caves in search of Galasite, and she finds it, but not a natural deposit. Rather, it's a glowing, manufactured conduit of the stuff. Chakotay, Tom, and Tuvok all catch up to her just in time to see her discovery, and then insist that she head back to Voyager. She's very resistant on a kind of aggressive high from the success of her mission, but Tuvok tries to explain that the effects of Ponfar have thrown her out of emotional balance. They can't argue about it for too long because seemingly out of nowhere, armed aliens appear and surround the away team. Act 3. The greetings are terse. No thanks to Bolana's fidgety aggression. It is diffused, though, when Chakotay volunteers his phaser for inspection, and the aliens seem to be okay with the intruders and their explanation that they thought this place was uninhabited. The peaceful first contact is all too quickly broken when a seismic event occurs, and in trying to move Balana to safety, one of the aliens finds himself on the receiving end of her newfound rage. As soon as they appeared, the aliens disappear with Tuvok and Chakotay, perfectly hidden by their environment and undetectable doors, and eluding the scans of a tricorder. In the melee, Tom and Polana are cut off from Chakotay and Tuvok, leaving these two with the dual problem of finding their way home and working through Balana's state of mind. Back on Voyager, the Doctor has found a way to help regulate Vorek's brain chemistry, but only so much. The Vulcan is still fighting as best he can, and still so reluctant for any additional help, but the doctor asks if he will at least consider one more therapy on the holodeck. There, the doctor has created Tapera, a simulation of a Vulcan woman. Vorik is skeptical. No, she isn't the same as a real Vulcan woman, the doctor concedes, but ultimately Ponfar must be resolved in the mind. In this case, the mind must convince the body and presumably vice versa. Vorek says he'll give this rather novel therapeutic approach a shot, and the EMH leaves him be. Checking in with Tom and Bolana, they have hit a dead end in the caves as they search for the rest of their team. Seems like that little earthquake sealed them in behind some fallen rocks, which raises Bolana's frustration to new heights, but she's taking it out in new ways. Even as Tom tries to explain that she can't shoot through the damage, she's becoming more and more forward with him. Yeah, he knows what a Klingon bite to the face means, and she knows that she has been feeling more of her instincts. But as they get closer and the urges grow stronger, Tom keeps a cool head. 
He reminds Bellana that he is her friend, and there is no way he would give in while she is in an impaired state. It might be hard for her, but she has to resist, and they will move on. Act 4. Let's meet our hosts on this not-so-uninhabited planet. They are the Sakari, descendants of the colonists who once lived here, and Ishan is turning his suspicions to Tuvok and Chakotay. He asks about their tech, their medical advances, and Chakotay assures him that if they don't want to be discovered by anyone else, they can actually help in the process. Whatever happened here was traumatic— pushing the survivors underground in an effort to hide every trace of their existence from whomever attacked them all those years ago. In a tentative show of friendship, Ishan accepts the offer of help. Back to Tom and Balana, their struggle increases as the cave around them continues to crumble, and Tom loses the weapon Balana grabbed from one of the Sakari, so they can't even try to shoot their way out. Tensions and emotions flare and Bellana pushes her way much closer to Tom, this time saying that all the time she said she wasn't interested in him in the past, well, that wasn't exactly the truth. They kiss, but Tom pushes her away again, hoping that someday she will say that again when she isn't influenced by Ponfar, naturally enraging Bellana again. On Voyager, meet the new Vorik. Cool as a cucumber, just lounging in the holodeck. Guess the doctor's prescription worked, but he assures Vorek he will never share a word of it with Starfleet. Again, this is a private matter. Vorek isn't quite ready to go back on duty yet, but the doctor does promise Janeway that the treatment has worked well enough that he can start prepping a similar one for Balana on her return. Speaking of... She's starting to lose focus, even forgetting why they're stuck here in the first place. Not a moment too soon, Chakotay breaks through the rocks blocking the chamber they're in, rescuing those two and bringing everyone up to the surface to contact Voyager. But Voyager isn't responding due to some kind of communications error. All this while Balana is nearing a point of no return in her condition. Tuvok puts it bluntly, Tom needs to step in to help her. Now, or she may die. Not the most romantic of setups, but Tom focuses on Balana for a moment, says he wishes circumstances were different, and she just tells him to be quiet as they step away from the cave entrance into the dense foliage. Act 5. Things are just getting steamy between these two when there's an interruption. Oh, hello, Vorik. The young ensign has disabled ship communications and transporters and arrived at the planet in a Ponfar fever to claim his mate, Balana, and he'll invoke the old Vulcan fight to the death with Tom if he has to. Not so fast, Balana says she'll take the challenge herself, which Tuvok agrees she has that right. Balana and Vorek start trading punches, and it is a brutal fight. They keep up with each other, blow after blow, until both fall to the ground, unable to fight anymore, and Tuvok declares that the blood fever has been purged. 
Sometime later on Voyager, all's well that ends well, the crew have helped the Sakari with their camouflage in exchange for Galasite. Tom and Balana, well, they have a slightly awkward run-in where they need to clear the air. She says she was suffering from a chemical imbalance, but Tom says he liked seeing her Klingon side, and maybe he'd like to see more. Before we can leave this part of space, Chakotay has a surprise for Captain Janeway. Among the ruins of this colony, he has discovered a remnant of what attacked, driving the Sakari underground more than a generation ago. It's a corpse, partly organic, humanoid, partly mechanical, unmistakable, the Borg. The end. That was wonderfully unawkward of a recap, John. Thank you. Because, you know, you could find all kinds of little awkward right. moments to truly And that, that must have been tough. I know that there were moments, intense moments in, across the board in this episode. And I think we're going to get to them in a little bit. But yeah, because, you know, what, there's so much here that needs to be seen rather than described. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's start at the top. I mean, I, I do. I really like the build with Vorak here. And thank goodness this is a character that we've seen a couple of times along the way. So there's a bit of familiarity, but we don't know him well enough so that we can't make a judgment call as this in character, out of character. So I like that there's a build and I like how he's awkwardly logical and Balana snubs him politely at first, but it's a scene where we are supposed to be unsettled by his increasing anger, and I like her fight back. Like For such a, a tight scene, tight. Um, it, they, they get across everything, I think, no, very you well. You said in trivia before and in, in previous episodes that this was Vorik's mm-hmm. first, should have been Vorik's first appearance? No, no, that, that would have been okay. last week. So the last two episodes were flip-flopped in release oh, okay. order, but it's okay because what we got, we got the important part out of it, which is previous to this, we got that moment where, you know, Vorik is reserving the table in the holodeck. In alter ego. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Tom looks a little put off, so he's just going to hang out with uh, with Harry. So at least we got that. Like, if these two had been yeah, aired out of been order, different. that would have definitely sure. messed yeah. it up. You know, yeah. I like uh, that Chakotay is concerned about someone else's claim on this planet with Galasite. It, it just seems... it. It seems responsible for a first officer to say, like, okay, this is nice. Anyone else got dibs on it? Because if no dibs, then it's ours. If dibs, then we got to smooth it out, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like they did everything right. They they looked for the ruins. They looked for the age of the site. Like, it, it really was so, smart. So yeah. Tom's rock climbing experience, did we know this from before? Or is this just conveniently dropped in here? Did we not get some of that in the pilot? In caretaker, and it, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think about who all had to make that treacherous climb up from the Ocampa to the surface, and I I thought it was Tom, but I don't know if we made a deal yeah. out of it I mean, or not. Climbing yeah. like twisted wreckage and metal is one thing; rappelling down yeah. like a chasm, completely different thing, right? From what I've been told, right, right. So, 
Well, you, you just say, you just share those nuggets I when they're relevant. So. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some great lines in this episode, many great lines, but I, I do love the EMH saying to uh, Vorek, with Lieutenant Torres upset is a relative <laughs> yeah, great, term. Great, great line. Yeah. <laughs> so well mm-hmm. said. Uh, let's talk about, man, Vorek's line, let me return to my quarters, confine me there if you wish, but allow me to resolve my situation privately. I, I'm starting to think the Vol are they're practically <laughs> they're so freaked out by sex well, you it's know? <laughs> like, so you have the victorian era maybe this is the vulcantorian era mm-hmm. oh i like the that same. good term um good term. i didn't yeah. see it at first right but vorek yeah. really did remind me a lot of the adolescent spock from star trek 3 it's great right? casting. And remember, this is Jerry Taylor's okay. son. And he's, he, he fits yeah, perfectly. Just, yeah. I know that if you put them side by side, they don't look similar, but they just felt similar. And, you know, especially once, mm-hmm. you know, adolescent Spock was going through the pond far with Savick. It just, yeah, it just seemed to bookend very well. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Big burning question of the week. Away team mission outfits. Yay Big yay for me. Big Go yay Norman for Lyle. me. Yeah, <laughs> Big, big yay. yay for me. I yeah. love okay. these uniforms. Uh, they might be one of my favorites in all of Star Trek. And I know I'm probably getting mm. darts thrown at me like right now, which is fine. I like <laughs> the I like the simplicity of the gray. I love the thicker piping mm-hmm. connoting the branch that they're in. I like the yeah. the quilting and the padding panels on the side and on the elbows. Yeah. yeah it just yeah. I don't know, it just seemed to work for me. What about you? Yeah. I thought they were cool. I thought they looked like everybody looked good at them. Neelix looked good in it. <laughs> you know, it's a cool outfit. Bring them back. And uh, I expect to see some. I mean, there was a little that. space 1999 love that was getting thrown my way that I was feeling from those uniforms. Oh, yeah. So, you know, may I call oh, upon yeah. that? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> just for you. That was there just for you, man. Interesting that when they do go to their mission, like they don't need a transporter chief at all. Right. <laughs> They're nope. just, you know, Bolanis is Would you want to get in front like, of her okay, at that stage going. of the game? No. No, no, definitely not. Um, and I thought the uh, the repelling scene was cool, but uh, why not use some cool Starfleet gear like Spock's anti-gravity boots? Oh. Anything like that? Okay, so Maybe. we didn't get those. But, and they weren't in frame earlier mm-hmm. when they beamed down on the planet. Yeah. But on the surface, you saw puffy space boots on those uniforms. <gasps> right? Oh, yeah. we did. Okay. Also, today's okay. album yeah. cover name. Oh, yeah. I like that. That'll be our uh, yeah. J-pop uh, Puffy space band. boots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I get that there's this whole to-do about rock climbing, rappelling, and you know, looking for the galacite. But I checked the opening sequence earlier, and there was no mm-hmm. reference to why they just couldn't beam out the galacite from the subterranean caverns. <laughs> so, and, right. and I, I guess that if they did that, we wouldn't have an episode. But they didn't say it specifically that because of X, they couldn't do Y. Because of it being so deep in the caverns, they couldn't beam it out. So the risk for all right. of this really wasn't set up properly, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I do like it when... (laughs) It makes me laugh thinking about it. I do like it when Uh Chakotay looked at Janeway on camera. And, you know, when Tom said about Balana, she bit you? And watch Robert (laughs) Beltran just hold back the laughter 
you know, in his performance. Yeah. You could tell that he yeah. was about to break and he didn't, which was awesome. Yeah, a good moment. I, I love the Vulcan to Vulcan chat about all of this because we really haven't gotten that before. And Tim is just constantly bringing his A game, especially to scenes like this. I, I love his line back to uh, to Vorek. Lieutenant Torres has never been a great follower <laughs> of logic. <laughs> great line. And, and, and what a nicely shot yeah. scene. I mean, we talk about the lighting in, you know, Tuvok's quarters, but that dark lighting really served a dramatic purpose here. Yeah, well. I liked the whole conversation about telepathic mating bond during the Ponfar. I thought that was, A, very yeah. informative since we don't know a lot about the Ponfar. Um, we're adding like a little bit more vocabulary to, to the definition of it, but it begs the question, if that's the case, if Vork was able to do that mm-hmm. and, and have this reaction to Balana, then did Sarek also initiate that kind of reaction to Amanda and then Perrin later on as referenced in Sarek in the next generation? I really wondered about this, how this has worked in any other case where you've had a Vulcan and non-Vulcan mates. Because right. Tuvok also yeah. specifically yeah. referenced that, that there were there were individuals outside of the Vulcan race that have been married to Vulcans. Sarek obviously yep. being yep. one of them, as exactly. we know. Yeah. Uh, very clever, creative stuff happening here with the Sakari. I love how camouflaged mm-hmm. they are among the cave walls. Just great. Not only did they look cool and did that serve a purpose, but I liked the camera and editing techniques to make them appear and yeah. disappear. Like just just quick cuts and then boom, they're gone. Really effective. And I thought that Chakotay's first contact protocol was, again, very in tune with what I've come to expect from him as a first officer. You know, he didn't flinch. He didn't react, you know, um, adversely. You know, he was very calm. You know, he was his first, again, his first contact protocol was there. He was looking for allies and not enemies. I thought that was fantastic. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a timestamp here at 23 minutes, 41 seconds. So there's this really wonderful downlighting on Bellana and her rifle, you know, when she wrested it from one of the guards. And you can tell that it's a stunt rifle and not meant Mm. for high definition or close-up purposes (laughs) because the barrel is solid. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It was a cool looking prop. It is, yeah. But yeah, you could tell that it it wasn't meant for no. super close no. up. <laughs> yeah. I man, I it, there are so many topics that we could get into later and uh, it remains to be seen what those will be yet, but interesting to hear Vorek say you don't understand how well a Vulcan copes with this experience is a test of his mm-hmm. character. There's so much going on here, so many levels. It's not just the chemical imbalance. It's not just the embarrassment of, again, what the doctor points out as just a purely biological function, but how they have this tied into their identity and their worth. That okay, we'll we'll come back. I'm right. saying no, but too I mean much. it we'll is it is back. interesting that you can you can tie this mm. back to what you just said earlier about kind of like this this mm-hmm. British culturalism and then. And this being applied to that also very famous one of suffering in silence. So, you know, you can, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, just want to generally lump them all together, but the, you know, the, the analogy can be made, I think. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and by the way, to our uh, UK listeners, right. this is not just to, to point you out. Believe me, we, we will get into how these things affect fair, multiple fair cultures. Say, yes. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of playing with the stereotype in that case. Um, and by the way, I got to hand it to the EMH. It really is about time that someone thought this up uh, for a holodeck uh, solution. But again, we'll we'll get into right, this. So much holodeck more therapy is... I mean, I don't even think we have enough time in our show, let alone several other shows, to really <laughs> get know. to the heart of what that means. Right? Yeah. We'll try. Well, we'll, 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 we'll see yeah. where we land there. I do like on Tapera. I love the classic Vulcan jewelry. It looks right out of the Star Trek mm-hmm. movies. Probably came from something in storage there. Man, some interesting lines. This isn't about the gun. It's about it's a PG sex. Show, John. Let's see. I know, I know. Okay. Yeah, it is a Tom right. Paris line. I mean, uh, okay, good. Uh, yeah, maybe in a perfect world. I don't know. I guess. <laughs> I suppose. Um, uh, but I will say these scenes—they are blocked and shot with a lot of yeah. close quarters. And even while steering clear, it, it's very obvious what's drawing them together. Just bold stuff, well executed, well shot, well choreographed. Mm-hmm. Tuvok, meanwhile, in the other chamber, uh, we learn he has an artificial elbow joint. Interesting. I found detail. that so interesting. And, and it's such a tiny detail. Yeah. <laughs> not only not only is it such an interesting tiny detail, but I love the build of the Sakari suspicions. Think about what they asked for. An artificial implant. This this surprises them and freaks them out a little bit. They want to know about technology. They want to know about artificial intelligence. So they're putting these pieces together yeah. as well before the audience has like, ooh, what are the hallmarks of our enemy? Mm-hmm. You know? And again, just another great, well-acted, well-shot scene between Tom and Bellana in that cave. And they, they keep cranking up the intensity in each of these. In a really so I was thinking way. about this. And, you know, there's this line that she says, which alluded to, like, all those invitations to dinner and on the holodeck, the way you would stare at me. And when you thought I wasn't looking and, you know, you would get jealous when I'm with someone else. And um, so I always felt that these lines applied to her observations of Harry Kim since the beginning, since Caretaker, Ah, since they uh have shared a lot of time together. They spent a lot of time in engineering together. It it just felt that he was more of the natural recipient of kind of like this critique of this observation from her. And I'm just, now I'm feeling like, okay, because of this, you are starting to feel a little bit of a retcon happening between these two. That's all from that. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, very good. I do love where this leads with the doctor doing sex research on multiple species <laughs> and the little details that we are learning along with them, like Klingons considering a clavicle break good luck. There is a shot of, of Janeway, a very quick eye twitch, where she she looks like yes. away from him, and that's Starfleet for this is awkward. <laughs> uh, yes, 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 um, yes. You yeah. know, when the doctor said to Vorik about, you know, his breakthrough about his holographic technique, and he basically came to the resolution of Starfleet Medical will never hear about your personal experiences from me. But I think that that's yeah. it's a weird thing for him to say because Vulcans 
can benefit from this therapy, and it doesn't have to be tied into Vork specifically. There's that word. I don't know. What's it? Oh, anonymous. That's right. That's the word. Oh, yeah. right. mm-hmm. ah, there we go. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Well, I guess anybody reading the EMH's records, though, they could narrow it down to two. Right. This is true. <laughs> you know. But yeah, it, well, does, it does 50% seem like, chance well, of getting it wrong. <laughs> that is true. Yes, yes. I like that. Yeah. All right. So in an episode full of awkward, funny, weird moments, just the very setup here, the very idea. <laughs> I don't know how I would feel about my coworkers pushing me into the jungle for a very intimate moment like Tuvok and Chakotay do to Tom and Bellana. Like, it's just part of the job. I mean, look at Tuvok's resolve here. Like, no, you, you need to go do this right now. Go. We'll just be over here. <laughs> I'm sure to a Vulcan, it's very logical, right? Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, it, interesting, like, really shortcut, uh, almost no explanation at all for Vorik just appearing and seemingly the holodeck treatment didn't take. Like, he just single-handedly, that didn't work. And then he disabled all ship systems single-handedly and got himself to the surface. Will he be punished for this? I hope when we come back with the next episode, <laughs> like there's some addressing of his And there's some serious aggression going on. I mean, wow, right? Oh, man. Um, yeah. Also, mm-hmm. a lot of data-like skills that was going on. So you got to be careful with that, you know? Yeah, yeah. He he can single-handedly take Big question, though, is where yeah. was his jumpsuit? Oh. Everyone oh. there had a jumpsuit. It's like he missed, like, Not the Oprah fair. show. Like, you know, you get a jumpsuit, and you get... Like, yeah. Bork was in sick bay. He didn't get his yeah. Oprah jumpsuit. Right? Yeah, nope. not fair. Listen, when he does show up, and he's ready to challenge Tom, and Tom's reaction, you want to fight? You got one. I don't think this is the best response no. out of Tom. Like, like, think about the sensitive Tom that we have had before saying, like, I'm not going to involve myself. I care about your mental condition. And then, like, you want to fight? I'll yeah. fight you. Like, nah, tone it down. A lot there. of chest thumpiness going on there. Uh, okay, so yeah, if there's yeah. something that I was really, really disappointed in in this episode, mm-hmm, and it was during mm-hmm. the Kunit Caliphy, it's the yeah. lack of homage to Gerald Fried's music from a mock time. Oh, that would have been right? great. I, I'm not saying that yeah. it has to be overdone. I'm just saying that whoever was responsible, whether it was Jay Chataway or Dennis McCarthy, you really dropped the Lerpa on this one. Just saying. And finally, let's talk about it. The reveal at the end. Did it catch you by surprise? How did you feel about that? That's a great ending. That's, that's just okay. rhetorical. Throw it out there. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Gregoric, you really have to feel for the guy. Blood fever is terrible. Pac-Man fever would have been much easier to treat. We'll get right back to blood fever after a word from this week's sponsor, Factor. Hey, it is spring, and a lot of people are thinking about like, oh, you know what? After winter, I want to get back into shape. I want to feel a little bit better in my own body. And I tell you what, one really good way to do that is you need to be giving yourself wholesome, convenient meals to energize you for warmer, more active days. And that's the kind of thing that will keep you on track for reaching your goals. 
Now, Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You, like me, we will save time, eat well, and uh, I'm going to say, you know, tackle everything on your to-do list. Well, maybe not on mine. But maybe on yours. Well, I mean, if you're too busy to cook this May with Factor, skip the trip to the grocery store. Skip the chopping and the prepping and the cleaning up, too, because Factor is fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. So all you have to do is heat and enjoy, then get back outside and soak up that warmer summer weather. Looking for calorie-conscious options ahead of summer? Try delicious, dietitian approved calorie-smart meals with a rounder less than 550 calories per serving. Hey, by the way, that that's the one that I did. That's the, the factor mm-hmm. meal that I got, the Calorie Smart. And I'm here to tell you that they were all delicious. And most importantly, I always felt satisfied. Like, that's kind of the worrying thing. If you ever get something, you go, oh, yeah, th- this is A, good for you, and B, not going to weigh you down with a bunch of calories. No, no, no. I felt satisfied. I felt good. And uh, everything was delicious. Yes. And if you want that extra boost of energy from your meal to support, say, your wellness goals going into the summer, try the Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. And the one that I tried, these are delicious. Uh, these are the calorie smart vegan and veggie mm, meals. Um, nice. They I loved them because uh, that's kind of like the food choices uh, for my life that work best for me. Mm-hmm. And remember, these are all approved by dietitians and prepared by chefs. And each meal has all of the ingredients you need to feel satisfied all day long. Just like you said, John, when you take a look at the portions, sometimes you're like, I'm not sure. (laughs) And when you're finished with that meal, not only was it delicious, but it was also really satisfying and filling. Yeah. Now, and there's a lot to choose from. That's important to me. I love a variety. There are more than 34 chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, that was kind of the key thing that you just said, weekly options. There's always something new to try. And then what I love is you can round that out and replenish your snack supply because there's more than 45 add-ons. Everything from breakfast items like apple cinnamon pancakes, bacon and cheddar egg bites, you know, all the way up to wellness booths like smoothies, juices, and shakes. I love those smoothies. They absolutely hit the spot in the middle of the day. And if you're looking to pack in a little more protein, guess what? You can add on some more filling options like, say, a salmon filet or chicken wings. This is all from Factor Meals to support your dietary goals any time of day. And uh, how about this? How about how it affects your budget. So if you want to budget for the month by cutting back on takeout, well, this is another good thing to keep in mind. Get Factor. Not only is Factor cheaper than takeout, but meals are ready faster than restaurant delivery. Two minutes, not waiting around an hour for somebody to bring food to your door. So a factor, you can also rest assured that you are making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions to your door, source 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices, and they feature sustainably sourced seafood in their meals. So this may get factor and enjoy clean eating without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, Flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes, no prep and no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash missionlog40, the number's four zero, and use code missionlog40 to get 40% off your first box. That's code missionlog40 at factormeals.com slash missionlog40 to get 40% off your first box. Hey, let's talk about sex. 
Maybe. Let's talk about... Oh, no. <laughs> no. You know that that's where it goes. Children of the 90s. Right, right. right. Yeah, we're going to talk about Pond Far. We're going to talk about sex. And it, you know what? It, it, it's so kind of interesting to me that here we are in 1997. We're past the... 30-year mark of Star Trek. As far as the episode we're discussing, obviously we're recording into the 21st century, but here we are in the time of Star Trek that we're talking about, and it's very infrequent that we get something this head-on Mm-hmm. getting into the sex lives of our characters. And I I would mention that in TOS. I would mention that in TNG. There are relationships, and there are more relationships in DS9, I felt like. But this is one of the few times we actually spend the episode doing this. So I'm getting that out of the way to say that, as you mentioned, we could do multiple episodes about any single topic brought up in this. And I feel woefully unprepared, unqualified. This is one of those where we need like Jesse Earl. You know, we need, mm-hmm. we need Jesse Gender to do the three hour video just about one thing here, like the holodeck or whatever. But that said, we do have our notes. I cannot wait to see the conversation that this inspires in our Discord and our social media. So hit me with what you got, my friend. Well, I wanted to preface this a little bit about the Pond Far and kind of like start with what we know about the Pond Far from the the overall body of work that is Star Trek, because there's not a lot. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably where a lot of kind of like the the play that happens with, you know, how we're going to go in our conversation. So in a mock time, the Ponfar was described by Spock as he said, you humans have no conception. It strips our minds from us. It brings a madness which rips away our veneer of civilization. It is the Ponfar, the time of mating. There are precedents in nature, Captain, the giant eel birds of Regulus 5. Once each 11 years, they must return to the caverns where they hatched. On your earth, the salmon, they must return to that one stream where they were born to spawn or die in trying. And Kirk says, but you're not a fish, Mr. Spock. You're, and Spock (laughs) says, nor am I a man. I'm a Vulcan. I'd hoped I would be spared this, but the ancient drives are too strong. Eventually, they catch up with us. And if we are driven by forces we cannot control to return home and take a wife or die. That's it. Yeah. That's really, aside from Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, which we saw Spock go through with Savick, that's it. That's all we know of the Pond Far, really, up until this point. Now it is a, pardon the pun, <laughs> fertile playing field. And what do we know of it now? How it's driving our characters? How do we approach it from that standpoint? Here's where I think the conversation gets murkier as we go along, because we're talking about the very specific definition that Star Trek's universe has created for its characters. And I love the kind of the poetry of what Spock is saying here. It's like this, it's like this, but still you don't get it. And I am unique because my people are unique. But I have to bring it back to something, which is, okay, how do we make this parallel to the human beings who wrote and acted in this show and the human beings who are watching this show, knowing that Vulcans don't actually exist? So what we're trying to do is make a statement here or do an investigation into part of the human condition through our alien characters. And that's where Spock's words, and that's where the premise that we have here is so interesting, because it's Star Trek's way of just waving its hands and saying, look, 
we've talked about everything from the Vietnam War to genocide to slavery to racism to blah, 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 blah. We also need to address something else big in the human condition, that, and that is sexuality. And mm-hmm. we're going to do that by making this kind of poetic parallel to say that it is this incredibly strong force that we need to deal with head on. Sometimes that's going to be embarrassing. Sometimes that's going to be difficult. Sometimes it's going to be misunderstood, even by the person experiencing it. But here we are, we're going to do it. We're going to do it through these alien characters to hopefully illuminate a little bit about the human condition vis-a-vis our very powerful sexuality. But why this particular angle of sexuality a la the pawn far because from the original series we have really had no problem talking about kirk's sexuality Mm -hmm. or the sexuality of earth heterosexual beings even in the next generation you know we've had references of Riker and you know his sexuality a la the holodeck and deep space nine and so in all the series that we've seen so far up until this point the heterosexual sexuality Mm -hmm isn't something that has been highlighted. It's the alien's interpretation, and especially in this case, the Vulcan's interpretation of that sexuality that is in question that's being referenced. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think you're hitting on it exactly by by referencing those points that you did. Look at Kirk, look at Riker, etc. These are characters who engage in something every now and then. You know, famously, we, we see Kirk you know, getting out of bed and pulling up his boots in week of an eye after he's had his run-in with mm. Dila. You have these moments that acknowledge that these human characters have sex and they have personal relationships and personal lives, but rarely, rarely has Star Trek done an episode about sexuality itself. And even in a muck time, A lot of that was about the cultural condition around that and how do we outsmart that? How does Kirk, well, how do Bones and Kirk outsmart that so that Spock can save a little face and get back to where he belongs in the Enterprise? I think this is one of those rare episodes where you're actually dealing with the ideas around sex in addition to just what's happening with these characters. I I think, you know, they're able to take this 30-year distance here 30 years since uh, since a mock time, I believe. I think that was 1967. And do something that is a little more... I, I don't know if deep is the right word, but I, I think they're taking the ideas a little more head-on. Uh, and that that's what I respect, because you actually get to have a conversation about it. I mean, one of my favorite lines is the EMH saying, it's a normal biological function. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. That it could not be more straightforward if it tried. And that is speaking not just to Vorik and in his condition, but it is speaking about the entire topic itself. Because, look, you know, we're, we're talking about the sex lives of fictional characters on a fictional starship in the far future in a fictional place. And in doing so, trying to figure out how that applies to the real world. I love how the EMH calls that Vulcan, you used the word before, that that Vulcan attitude being Victorian. But then, Mm -hmm. then I love how he actually flips it and he puts it into a cultural context that 
Vorek can understand, I fail to see the logic in perpetuating ignorance about a basic biological function. I love bringing that fight back to Vorek's own turf in a way that he can understand. Now, I don't know how our other Vulcans on board uh, Tuvok, or if we were to propose this to Spock, how they would respond to that. But the EMH's logic is, I think, impenetrable at that point. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if Vorik is embarrassed about talking about his sexuality, at least at this stage in his life. And embarrassment is an emotion. So that's another layer on top of this to, you know, to complicate, you know, uh, you know, the discussion. But is it about because Vorik's virginity is at play here? This is his first mm-hmm. Ponfar. So, yep. you know, losing one's virginity is a very sensitive topic to, you know, people of that age group. You know, it it identifies certain things in, in the masculine, you know, vernacular and perspective. And I'm sure... Um, and I'm, what I what I mean by saying I'm sure is like I am sure that I don't know what that even means, you know, to mm-hmm. other sexualities and identities at this time and at this period of their life. So I can see Vorik being analogous to just the sheer amount of privacy that is being lost because he has to act on this urge in order to define the sexuality of who he and his culture expect him to be. I think that's fair to say. It it is fair. And and that's something that I love about this episode is this condemnation of how we speaking, you know, at least for, you know, 20th century mainstream America. And here we're not going to uh, just fully throw this on the uh, stereotype British tradition of (laughs) of suppressing, uh, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. sexual imagery, discussion, etc. But that is a very pervasive thing, which is to start out from a position of shame and embarrassment and privacy to the extent that these people can't even find the words to discuss what they're going through. You know, I, I the first thing I wrote down, the first note that I wrote down watching this was, haven't the Vulcans ever heard of masturbation? Like, haven't they mm. even figured out any way at all to get through this that isn't potentially deadly? Like, they have gone the route literally of saying you've got three options you can meditate about it but that may not work and it may drive you insane you can take a mate which uh, then we're getting into areas of consent here which are very complicated from a vulcan culture point of view because well most of their relationships are prearranged and that is a whole other thing you know or death literally death fight to the death which they they skirted around at the end of this one they just kind of knocked each other out but this equation of sex being something so volatile so dangerous that it can lead you to death uh is Mm -hmm. something that we should hold a bit of judgment against the Vulcans for, for not for as high minded, as logical, as advanced as they are, that they haven't been able to get this level of embarrassment, uh, this shame about their own biology, about about a physical fact of who they are. I wonder if this is a remnant that hasn't been able to to, to evolve since kind of like the 
the like the proto Vulcan era where they were always kind of like in that warlike state where their passions were driving them and emotions almost led them to you know a complete collapse of their society and total ruin you know until you know Surak mm-hmm. came into play you know that that may be this but I find it strange that. You know, you're trying to like hand wave or the writers, you know, about the Ponfar mm-hmm. are trying to hand wave away that this can't be rectified because it strips them, them, the Vulcans away from all semblance of logic or reason, etc. But at the same time, though, it's not as simple as swimming upstream, you know, as a salmon, because you just said that they had prearranged marriages, which means that there's a complexity to, you know, to their cultural and sexual lives that are already being developed. So it's not just cavemanning it and like thumping the nearest female over the head and then having yeah. sex with her. Right. Um, and also something else that just came to mind, if it was about self gratification, then I think that that would be the end of a part of this conversation. But it's not. Yeah. It's not about self-gratification. It's about what Vork was describing to Bolana that I have, I have assessed you as a suitable mate based on your strength, based on your moral fiber, and based on this, these other factors. So it's not just let's have this, you know, let's have this violent, sexual, gratifying encounter. This is about the preservation of one's genealogy and genetics and how they're going to move forward with the best possible rate of survival based on evolution. Yeah. Right. I I like what you were saying a moment ago about Vulcan history and what we know about them and, and the reason for repressing and suppressing these strong emotions, because I'm going to bring this back to a real world parallel and say that you know, for as much as we as 21st century humans like to pat ourselves on the back for being advanced and thoughtful in so many ways, we also come from a long cultural and religious history. And I'm not talking about a specific one religion, but many of them that have done exactly the same thing that have said, like, it, it, segregated types of human experience to say, these are worthy, noble goals and causes. These are worthy ways to act. But when it comes to sexuality, that is something that is shameful and dirty and uh, private and should not be discussed in sort of an open, supportive, understanding way. That is <laughs> that that is so many combined histories of so many schools of cultural thought and religious thought. And it's one of those places where when we compare a human experience to the fantastical fictional species of Star Trek, we look at Vulcans and we go, wow, you know, they've got it figured out in so many ways. And if we could only be more logical like them, if we could only get in tune with not acting out in the ways that we do and and uh, control ourselves the way that Vulcans do, that would be great. Except, except, I'm going to plant a huge red flag in this one and say that the Vulcans dealing with their own sexuality is absolutely abominable. <laughs> and it is absolutely the most dangerous way to take that conversation, as we see, because as we see in human history, we set up these institutions that then see sex as a means to condemn or control and build these very complex social, cultural, religious rules around them, which in many ways deny the reality of human experience. 
I want to take the conversation in a slightly different direction because I know that you and I have so many notes that we will never get to in this. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the holodeck. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about the holodeck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, holodeck as a sexual aid because I feel like for so long, ever since this idea was even introduced, the idea of the holodeck in TNG, that the joke was always that people on the Enterprise or on DS9 or whatever, they use the holodeck for their private fantasies. But here, here we've got to use that way too, but literally as a medical device in that respect. And I, I think it's ingenious, especially if we think about it in this therapeutic sense, but but also in a recreational sense. I mean, I, this is what humans have done since prehistory. They they create clever alternative ways to express and or supplement their sexuality. Truly one of the great creative forces of nature and human cultural history. So I thought this was a great way to start exploring that. Not going to say that it's not problematic because I've identified some of the problems with this as well. But I'm wondered, uh, I wonder about your initial take on that. Well, I mean, with all technology, you can use it for the purpose it was created for, or you could pervert it for another purpose that it can be created for. So that's what I think this particular treatment is opening up in terms of a wider range of discussions. So you have the fact that the doctor needs to do what is right for the patient and find a way in, and to cut through kind of like this Vulcan mysticism and treat the patient's needs based on a biological, chemical, you know, nature, something that he knows how to be able to rectify. Mm -hmm. And he does it through creating this program that supposedly is able to hopefully trick Vorik's biology to accepting that this can satisfy his pond far. He says that the, the mind and the body have to be able to rectify this in order for you to become uh, or, or for your pond far to be able to subside as your biology demands. Mm -hmm. I think that is fine from a medical standpoint. But then you look at the application of this when it eventually will come out in a way to satisfy the needs of the crew. And like you said, with the technology that has been created in order to satisfy, you know, humanity's curiosity or appetites or urges about their own sexuality, however it is defined, always ends up becoming perverse in nature somehow. So Wait, how does this not? I, well, I'm going to step you right there. Why, why do we need to separate, separate and create a judgment on those two things and to say that one thing that is medically therapeutic can't also be individually gratifying, can also be recreational. You know, no, I'm saying they yeah. can't they can be for sure. Okay. And maybe that's like the third tier in this equation. You mm -hmm. have that you have those two, which don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. But in some way, shape or form, it will eventually become perverted based on its technology, because if you use it in a way that is proper, defining proper is also a very slippery slope, mm -hmm. then how do you stop it from becoming improper based on its abuse? Like. If you create a simulation of a person mm -hmm. that you have literally like no moral standing with after you erase said program for after doing said act, what does that actually mean? Right? Mm -hmm. You're creating an avatar 
of something, a fantasy mm-hmm. that will never become reality. And then, forgive me for saying this, folks, but I'm going to be completely honest mm-hmm. with you. Then you have Jordy and Leia Brahms. Mm. Right? And I'm not saying that he's taking it to that nth degree, but you're creating the fantasy of someone who you want to behave in a certain way, but that's not the reality of how somebody actually behaves. You are empowering someone with the ability to act a certain way that is not real, and that is dangerous when you put that person in the outside world, assuming that you think that person should be should act in a normal way when normal has been curated by that person's needs only. Well, see, I, I, but I, I don't know if that's a holodeck problem or a technology problem. I think it's a Geordie problem, if we talk about it in that respect, with his inability to mentally separate the holodeck fantasy versus the reality of the human being. So just saying that, you know, that that is a perverse use of that space, well, he went down a path that he wasn't expecting. He got sucked up into it. What he probably needed to do was, uh, you know, check himself with Deanna Troy, maybe before he met the real Leah Brahms. But I'm, I, I'm, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out where it is that one could even begin to parse. Like you even caught yourself using a word like normal or mm-hmm. or perverse, like. Okay, where do those lines lie? Where are they drawn? Because as far as we have seen up until now, that holodeck has been used for any number of sexual fantasies on the Enterprise, on DS9, and presumably on Voyager up to this point, but we haven't really talked about it. But now we have something that is designed for and expressed to the audience as explicitly sexual. There is this therapeutic use for it, there, which, by the way, I thought was interesting in the respect that, you know, is this a kind of sex surrogacy? Folks, go, you know, read your vintage copy of Masters and Johnson to see what that's all about, because then you are getting into some very complex and, and very fascinating ideas of ethics in the therapeutic realm, but then also sort of mixed up with our cultural and ethical ideas about sexuality. This is where it gets interesting for me because we can take all these other parts of human experience. We can pick them apart for their ethical value, their cultural value. But as soon as the element of sexuality is introduced, then we change the conversation rapidly Mm -hmm. and we say, oh, but wait, but that part is wrong. But that part is not normal. That part is perverse. And I think that's where this, an episode like this, because of just the use of technology here, leads into this much more complicated conversation that I am thankful (laughs) that Star Trek did this week. If Confar had hit Thoric just two weeks earlier, then Thoric, meet Mirena, Mirena, meet Thoric, problem solved. Thoric has lousy luck and even lousier timing. So I think the cowbell has definitely been beaten. <laughs> and I'm not sure if we've been able to satisfy our fever, mm. but you know where I'm going with this. I do. You know, I'm, I'm going to just put the innuendos aside. We're adults here. Yeah. We're going to talk about adult things. We're going to get to the end of blood fever, and we're going to do what we want to do here, or we are want to do here mm-hmm. at Mission Log and see if this episode 
has any morals, messages, or meanings for us at the end. But first, we're going to see if it withstands the test of time. And let's see how it stands the test of time or not with you, Mr. John Champion. Norman, it's a muck time meets the naked time. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Okay, and, yeah and, and, and let me tell you, I am here for it. I, now, first of all, like we said at the top, there are so many possible conversations to have about this episode. That automatically makes it a step above for me. Because even if I didn't love an episode, the fact that we could just pick any one thread and keep discussing that, that makes me excited about talking about a show. It makes me excited for the further conversation that will come after this episode of our podcast drops. I had another thought, which I didn't even make it into my notes, and that is, what is the evolutionary advantage of Pon Far? Like, mm-hmm. does it actually serve an, ad- uh, an evolutionary advantage that you have to mate or you go insane? And by the way, there are probably a lot of former Vulcans who died during this process. So, again, you know, like you could really pick apart, like, does this work in their in favor or does it not? All right, let's get into this particular episode. Now, we didn't mention it really in Alter Ego, but we talked a little bit earlier in this episode. There is that little hint of flirtation between Balana and Tom in other episodes, too. Part of me wishes that this relationship had taken a bit more of a slow burn, like give us some time to grow and then accept it. But then there's another part of me that's pretty okay with this thing where the chemically imbalanced sexual attraction comes first and then the relationship. That's acceptable too. And in the real world, not uncommon wink (laughs) you know those of you understand that yes you you understand that that is a thing so whether or not this holds up uh i i don't think that i can put this among the greatest of star trek episodes of all time but as i referenced before for as many times as the next generation gave us a tease finally here is an episode that goes there and explores all kinds of variables in sexual relationships even though we are partly pathologizing them, it's okay that it gives us a lot of room for discussion. I, mm-hmm. It does pave the way for that Tom and Bellana relationship, which is great. And in that respect, it has to hold up long enough to get us there, even if the catalyst of the relationship is very unorthodox. But 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 that's just it, though, that, that unorthodox part. This is what I want to see more of. And what I got into in my wrap-up last week, which is that Voyager takes unfair criticism. But when you dig deeper, you realize that it's a show not afraid to go there with its characters. Not everything has to be high drama with galaxy-wide consequences. Sometimes we can just play in this, again, unorthodox creative space and really dig into something that gives us a huge wide space for further discussion. So in that respect, it, I, I think it absolutely holds up. And, and I have to tip my hat to an episode that will provide us with many more ways to have this conversation down the road with each other and with our listeners. What about you? I mean, I'm going to say yes. I think this absolutely holds up for me, but for maybe some reasons that 
aren't obvious or, or maybe at first, because as we do with Mission Log, you know, we watch these episodes, you know, multiple times. And when I settled in on this episode, it's it's the Vorik story that really caught my attention. I think this is one of those rare occasions that the B story, and I think that his story is the B story versus Balana and the mining story being the A story. I found that the B story with Vorik and the pond far was incredibly compelling. And mm-hmm. when I realized what was going on with him in regards to him suffering silently versus entertaining a morally questionable treatment, <laughs> that just made me ask more questions and it made me explore the episode a little bit deeper. And I will address those in morals, meanings and messages in a second. I really thought that Alexander Enberg's Vorik was very compelling to watch. Mm. You know, he's, he was a new fresh face. Uh, he acted v- in, in a violent way that I haven't seen a Vulcan actually, you know, uh, encounter before, like at the end, yeah. like even Spock in a mock time, he was very broodingly aggressive, yes. but not yes. uh, like psychopathically aggressive, <laughs> right. which was say, you know, Vork at the end with the fight scene. Robert Picardo, he is the rising tide that lifts all boats when it comes to performances. Mm-hmm. And I thought that his scene with uh, Tuvok Tim Russ, uh, at the very beginning in sickbay talking about the pond far i think that's one of the best scenes like in voyager that i've seen to date yeah just the way they explored that and the way they pushed back on each other roxanne when she plays vulnerable she plays vulnerable very well you know like um mm-hmm. in the episode where she was stripped of her klingon half and she was just mm-hmm. you know balana's human half uh she has great nuances in her performance and i like it when we actually get to see that from time to time but speaking of balana and tom you can tell <laughs> that there is a definite direction being shifted for the both of them for whatever reason and we're going to obviously that's going to be made clear very soon but you can tell that a lot of deck chairs are being placed in very specific areas on the ship yes uh, Kess and Neelix, for example. I mean, Neelix gets more screen time. Kess gets a little bit sidelined again. Um, And we saw that happen in fair trade, you know, to a very extreme degree. Captain Janeway is getting a lot of introspective time and showing that she's just more than this maternal figure, that she can go out there and roll up her sleeves like she did in macrocosm and then, you know, have some of these, you know, bigger moments as the captain. We're seeing her being aligned in a very specific way, and now Tom and Bellana. So Voyager's changing. You can feel it as it happens on screen, and I think that's great. It's just that uh, there's a specific vision, I think, now in play, and it's it's interesting to, to see where it's going, but then I'm going to miss maybe some of the references that we don't get anymore, like uh, Chakotay and the Maquis, things of that nature that built kind of like the momentum uh, where we got to essentially basics and that hasn't been really referenced since. So uh, it's, I, I like this episode cause it just, it, it, it shook up the convention, you know, that kind of maybe lulled us into like, you know, kind of like a ho-hum hmm. uh, expectation of episode per episode. Mm-hmm. So this one, this one itself was, I thought was you know, very engaging to watch. Yeah, let's look into some of those morals, meanings, messages. Again, woefully mm-hmm. inadequate, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. I, you know, a couple of thoughts that I had. One is that I, I have to question the idea, and I don't think it's central to the premise necessarily, but as we're drawing this parallel between Vulcan sexuality and what it means to actually examine human sexuality, what is the show trying to say about us 
through the parallel of these fictional characters. Uh, maybe there's something a little off about this idea that the the answer to Vorex and Bellana's problem is simply that, well, they need to go have sex to get it out of their system, and then they'll be fine. The, the, this combination of sex and violence and that the Vulcans still haven't been able to work their way through it is a little strange. Like You'd think that with the advancements of their culture, they'd be able to get past this, but then we wouldn't have a story, now would we? Something that Vorek says to the EMH, you don't understand. How well a Vulcan copes with this experience is a test of his character. That is a line of dialogue that is... <laughs> absolutely rot. <laughs> uh, there are many ways to pick that apart and figure out what is going on in Vorek's heart here and what his expectation is uh, for himself, what his cultural background is, what his beliefs are. There are things in life that we are perfectly capable of dealing with on our own and some probably not. And then there are the things that we have pathologized and stigmatized to such a degree that we're cornered into a position of not getting help when we need it most. Uh, yeah, Vorik is dealing with a personal and sensitive issue, but he comes from a culture like many on Earth, many on Earth, where not only is discussion frowned upon, but we also celebrate dealing with it on our own as a kind of rite of passage, like it's the way to prove you're a real man. This is toxic. This is outdated and asinine and needs to stop. We all need to put on our EMH hats at some point and realize that it's far better to deal with basic biological matters with a lack of shame, far removed from the judgments made against those who seek out help. I'm surprised how aligned we are mm. with our morals, you know, specifically mm -hmm. with this particular aspect. So, But I have a moral... And a song lyric, John. Hey, right on. Lay it on me. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now these days are gone. I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind and opened up the doors. I believe I recognize that lyric. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before I get into my final morals, I just want to use one quote from the EMH here. You're doing the best you can. He's talking to Vorik. You're doing the best you can under unusually difficult circumstances. If you were on back in Vulcan, you'd have your family and your friends there to help you. Vorik says, I shouldn't need any help. Hmm. At some point in time in our lives, we all need help. But like Vorik, sometimes we're either too proud or too ashamed or both to ask for help. And like Vorik, to the, to the detriment and possibly even to place our own health and personal safety in danger, to admit that we need help, that we need to rely on the kindness of others, that we can't go it alone, and that admitting as such is a sign of weakness, in my opinion, it's not. It's a sign of accepting the fullness of your own humanity, and that can be very healing if we look ourselves at ourselves more forgivingly. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Unity. 
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. It's a good thing Vorek didn't find himself cuddling up to a leftover macrovirus in the holodeck, in a three-armed Hawaiian shirt. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.